Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Michael Carlberg on December 7, 2020. Michael is a professor of communication studies at Western Washington University. His scholarship examines the prevailing conceptions of human nature, power, social organization, and social change, and their implications for the pursuit of peace and justice. We discuss his book, Constructing Social Reality, an inquiry into the normative foundations of social change in the interview. I started the interview by asking Michael where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I was born in New Hampshire, but my family moved to Illinois when I was just like two years old. So my childhood was in Illinois. And then we moved actually to Vancouver, Canada. After that, my teenage years. Let's see, my religious life. Well, my mother became a Baha'i when I was two. So I was around the Baha'i faith, you know, as a child growing up. My whole family wasn't Baha'i, so there was a sort of partial presence in my life. I suppose when I was a teenager, I kind of pushed it away a bit and tried to, you know, explore life on its own terms. And eventually, in in college, decided to take it more seriously and and began really my own sort of investigation and, and participation. You studied communications at university. What drew you to that field of study? at university? My first degree, my undergraduate degree, was in environmental studies. I taught briefly at a high school, environmental studies, and I quickly came to appreciate that everything most of my students thought they knew about the natural world, they had learned from television, Mm. (laughs) which at the time was a dominant medium. Mm -hmm. So I became very interested in the way our media mediate our relationship with the natural world. And I went to graduate school, studied media studies, and yeah, that kind of led me down this path. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I've looked at uh, over the years are is basically thinking about the media actually as, as a layer of our environment, our media environment, and how it shapes us, and also the forces that shape our media. Is your first book Beyond the Culture of Contest? Yes. In that book, there's the observation that having democratic government with political parties isn't functioning well and that capitalistic competition (laughs) isn't supporting a just society. And I think people are now realizing this. How does Beyond the Culture of Contest address these issues? I really try to get to the sort of intellectual foundations, you know, of, of Western civilization, at least. And We've organized, really, for the last several centuries, we've organized almost every social institution around the principle of competition, almost in a kind of really social Darwinist way. I mean, you know, this thinking that competition is the sort of natural and inevitable way to organize social the social world. Yeah, in my book, I really, I look at the consequences of that. And... It turns out, if you really take a sort of sober look at it, that, that the consequences 
as we're starting to really appreciate, I think now are uh, increasing gaps between the rich and poor, other forms of oppressive social hierarchies, race, you know, racial hierarchies, foremost among them, but also uh, an inability to steward uh, the natural environment effectively because we're unable to sort of respond collectively to environmental challenges and, and problems and so forth. So, so basically what I argue is that the problem is made worse when we organize all three of the sort of central institutions of modern life, one of which is our systems of governance, the other is our economy, and the other is our sort of judicial and legal system. You know, when, when we organize all three of those around the principle of competition, what ends up happening is it subordinates our political and legal processes to our economic system because political and legal contests are expensive and whoever has the most wealth tends to prevail in them. And that's determined in, in our highly competitive you know, capitalist economy. So the sort of net result of all of that is that concentrations of wealth corrupt our political and legal processes and make it very difficult to address increasingly complicated problems facing humanity today. And do you see any signs of people realizing this and there be some glimmer of hope of change for the future in this regard? I think so. I think more, you know, I wrote this book 20 years ago. Actually, I started writing about 25 years ago at the time. A lot of people thought I was a bit crazy. I just it, Michael, they may not even have realized that their government was was even dysfunctional 25 years ago, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, the book began as my doctoral thesis, and mm-hmm. a lot of my own, a lot of my own doctoral supervisors really had a hard time getting their head around what I was arguing. Since then, I've actually had conversations with some of them who said, "See the book as somewhat prophetic for his time." I see in my own students in evolution. I've been teaching now for uh, about 23 years at a university, and my own students have come a long way in terms of their understanding that the system is dysfunctional at the deepest level. It's like the, the, the basic organizing principles are flawed. And my students increasingly are eager to have a conversation about that, to try to think through those deeper sort of problems. That wasn't the case when I started teaching just you know 20 some years ago. So especially with young people, there's been a rapid evolution, I think, of their willingness to question the basic assumptions of the, of the existing social order. And there are actually some surveys that show, for instance, young people are turning away from capitalist ideology in droves right now in the United States, which doesn't mean that they're anti-market, I think it's important distinction to be drawn between capitalism and, and market economics, but capitalism is a system, is a way of organizing a market that privileges the accumulation of wealth in the hands of few. And young people are just increasingly rejecting that. You authored another book called Constructing Social Reality, an Inquiry into the Normative Foundations of Social Change. So what inspired you to write this book? Well, some of the challenges I see that are also 
like at the foundations of, of modern society, foundational problems. One of them is the problem of, of relativism, this idea that there are no moral truths or no truths about how humans ought to live and that everything's just relative. It's all just whatever your preferences are, whatever your culture says it should be and so forth. And that kind of moral relativism is another reason we're unable to solve problems together. If we can't agree on basic principles about how we ought to live, it becomes almost impossible to figure out how to live together and, and solve problems together. So in some ways, this book really tries to, to look at the question of relativism and offer a sort of root out of the crisis of relativism in the modern world. And can you give us an example of this relativism thought compared to maybe something that's more an absolute, quote-unquote, absolute truth? Well, sure. So, I mean, one of the more familiar examples is in the domain of human rights, right? You know, after the Holocaust and the horrors of World War II and the United Nations was formed and an effort was made to articulate a universal set of human rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in order to hopefully prevent the kind of just horrible atrocities that had just been witnessed in Europe and other parts of the world. Since that time, a growing number of people have not only pointed out the somewhat obvious flaws in that declaration as somewhat Western bias, you know, a, a very sort of individualistic interpretation of human rights, but more deeply, a lot of people have argued that human rights just don't exist and that every culture determines its own norms and practices and there are no universal standards and a lot of oppressive regimes use that argument to defend the treatment of, of women within them and so forth. So there's a cultural relativism that people hear often as an argument against universal human rights. That's an example of the relativism that we see. But that's a cultural expression. There are also just personal expressions of it. And I think we encounter this every time we hear someone say something like, well, whatever works for you, right? You know, this sort of attitude that if it works for you, great. You know, we all have our own values, our own beliefs, and there's no one truth and so forth. So those are popular illustrations of the kinds of ways people often encounter relativism. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it has, I think, really deep and pernicious expressions. So let me give you a, a more contemporary example if you think about the problem today of global warming or climate change, it's very clear that the people who are going to suffer most from a warming climate are the poorest, you know, most marginalized people on the planet all over the world. People living on low-lying islands or coastal plains or, you know, basically dependent on seasonal runoff from glaciers and, and so forth. So the people who are going to be harmed the most are the people actually who are the least responsible for creating global warming. It tends to be the wealthier, industrialized, high energy consuming people that are most responsible. So, you know, it raises a moral question of do wealthy people on this planet have a special moral burden to address global warming? Or on the other hand, 
is it every man for himself, so to speak? Everyone just see how it shakes out, and some people are going to survive, some people aren't. So that's really a question of moral relativism there. Are there are there moral truths that we should be applying to this situation, or is it just a kind of a Darwinian competition for survival? Mm. And it seems that the COVID-19 situation is somewhat similar. It raises similar questions, Yeah, absolutely. Who has the kind of moral responsibility? So, like, the COVID has really exposed for people who maybe were unwilling or unable to see this before the tremendous sort of racial and economic disparities in countries like the United States and who's taking the brunt of this. And yeah, same moral questions get raised. The synopsis of the book says that the most significant obstacles to human well-being today are habits of Western thought that have been exported around the world. I was wondering if you could give us some examples of these habits of Western thought creating obstacles to well-being. These two that we've been talking about would be examples. So this culture of contest and the competitive principles, which have been widely exported. The moral relativism that we've just been talked about have also been very widely exported. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are other examples I look at in in my most recent book. And one has to do with the relationship between knowledge and power. which is another central theme of the book. So most people understand on a simple level that people in power can shape what we consider to be knowledge. So like a a simple example is this saying that like the victors write the history, right? People who prevail in, in war and conquest get to write the narrative that explain what just happened in favorable terms. So that's an example of power shaping or corrupting knowledge but increasingly we're starting to understand that actually power shapes knowledge in all sorts of ways for instance medicine which is presumably a natural applied science which should be quite free from distorting influences we're now starting to understand all the ways that medical research has been biased towards understanding and treating the male body rather than female bodies and the ways that racialized and marginalized minorities have been used as test subjects often in highly unethical ways in medical research and so even in areas like medicine now people are starting to understand that power distorts the generation of knowledge some people many people actually in in academia, argue that all knowledge is basically just an expression of sort of power relations, which creates a very cynical attitude towards knowledge and a distrust of knowledge and of science itself. And actually, we're seeing that in the world today playing out right here in the United States, you know, that science is increasingly viewed with skepticism, truth is itself, like even, I'm not even talking about moral truths now, just like truths about the natural world, are increasingly dismissed or discarded. So this cynical and doubting attitude towards truth itself is another habit of mind that's quite advanced in the Western world and is also being exported around the world in various ways. I think in your book, you discuss some of the fundamental principles for constructing social reality that provides a foundation for social change. 
what would be some of those fundamental principles for constructing social reality that provide a foundation for social change? There are some, I think, basic moral or spiritual truths hmm. that increasingly, I think, thoughtful people are starting to sort of recognize. And one is just the oneness of humanity, that, that humanity is organically interdependent. You know, my well-being depends on your well-being and, and on everyone else's. Only if I work towards the sort of well-being of the entire social body can I ensure my own well-being because of this interdependence. So recognizing the oneness of humanity is one of those truths. Social justice is another one. But justice, of course, takes on different meanings depending on how we understand society. So if we see society as, a, as an interdependent social body, like I was just describing, then justice begins to assume a meaning in which we see that we need to create the conditions in which every individual and group, every member of the social body can develop their latent potentials, their, their capacities to contribute to the greater good. Of course, those conditions don't exist in the world today. Many groups really don't have opportunities to develop their, their potentialities. So this principle of justice in the context of our organic oneness becomes another sort of central organizing principle. Those are the illustrations of what I mean by the kinds of principles we need to apply toward the construction of our new social reality. Michael, would you like to read an excerpt from Constructing Social Reality? Sure, I can read the introductory page and a half or so. It'll give you a sense of where the book goes. So, humanity cannot continue in its present course much longer. Over the past century, we've transformed the conditions of our own existence, but we've not yet adapted to these new conditions. Existential threats such as global warming and nuclear conflict, crippling worldwide pandemics, and a host of acute social injustices and ecological disruptions are awakening us to the need for profound social change. The complex global interconnected nature of these challenges is without historical precedent. We're entering territory for which we have no map. We don't know how to live together on this contracting planet and we must learn our way forward. In this sense, Learning implies the purposeful and systematic generation of knowledge that is partly scientific and technological, but also and perhaps primarily social knowledge. We need to generate knowledge about the new social reality we have to construct, including how to construct it. Knowledge of this kind has an intrinsically normative dimension. In other words, it's not merely descriptive or explanatory, it's also prescriptive. It's about how we ought to live together if we hope to adapt successfully to the new conditions of our existence. But what does it mean to generate knowledge with a normative dimension? Upon what foundations can such knowledge rest? Are all normative truth claims merely expressions of our subjective preferences emotional states or cultural sensibilities? In other words, are all normative claims merely relative 
or is it rational to speak about foundational normative truths, foundational aspects of reality upon which we can construct a viable social order? And if so, how can knowledge about such truths and their application to the betterment of humanity be generated? Questions about the normative dimensions of social existence reveal unresolved tensions implicit in how many people understand the relationship between truth and relativity. These questions also disclose unresolved tensions regarding the relationship between knowledge and power. In the latter regard, it's widely understood that power and privilege can shape the categories, concepts, and theories developed across the social sciences including allegedly objective fields such as economics. Power and privilege can even shape the generation of knowledge in the applied natural sciences in domains such as medical, pharmaceutical, and agricultural research. Indeed, the relationship between knowledge and power has been so extensively interrogated in these and other fields that it has led some to adopt the cynical view that all knowledge, or at least all knowledge about social reality is a mere function of power, privilege, and social position. And yet, if we accept this cynical view, how can the generation of knowledge illumine a path toward a more peaceful, just, and prosperous social order? How can knowledge contribute to human progress at all if those who dominate its generation and dissemination occupy privileged social positions and are motivated by self-interested biases. Is knowledge merely a function of power? These questions take on profound significance at this historical juncture when we face existential global challenges. In the face of the preceding questions about truth and relativity and about knowledge and power, some people have adopted cynical or nihilistic worldviews that offer no route forward. Against this backdrop, the central thesis of this book is that foundational normative truths exist, and human knowledge can to some degree become attuned to them. Moreover, the generation of such knowledge and its application to the betterment of humanity need not be corrupted by power and privilege. It is possible under the right conditions to learn our way forward toward a more peaceful, just, and mutually prosperous social order. To do this, we need a framework that reconciles truth and relativity, as well as knowledge and power in rational and constructive ways. This book suggests a logically coherent and empirically tenable way to do this that enables us to move beyond cynical and nihilistic modes of thought and practice. We just heard Michael Carlberg read from his book, Constructing Social Reality, an inquiry into the normative foundations of social change. And he is a professor of communication studies at Western Washington University and his scholarship examines the prevailing conceptions of human nature, power, social organization, and social change, and their implications for the pursuit of peace and justice. 
I noticed in the passage and also in the title, Michael, the word normative, like in the title says mm -hmm. normative foundations. And I know you used uh, the term normative a number of times. What does that mean? Okay, sure. So, you know, normative is a term that philosophers and social theorists use, which it actually has two meanings, like so many English words. One is it, it means it's the, a description of the norms, the social norms that, you know, prevail in a given place or time. But the way I'm using it and the way it's more commonly used, normative means the ways human beings ought to live. It's a sort of prescriptive term. So a normative principle is a principle about how we ought to live. Most people would call that a moral principle. Religious people might even call it a spiritual principle, but philosophers would often refer to it as a normative principle. It's a, maybe a little bit more of a precise term in that sense, a principle about how we ought to live. So, Michael, where can people find your book, Constructing a Social Reality? Well, it was published by the Association for Baha'i Studies, in North America, and it can be purchased from their website. It's also carried on Amazon, which is probably the easiest way for most people these days to purchase it. It's probably in other book outlets, but those are the probably the two easiest ways to find it. And what is the Association for Baha'i Studies? So the Association for Baha'i Studies is a network of people who are trying to learn how to bring Baha'i principles and the experience of the Baha'i community to bear on contemporary social problems and other forms of scholarship, including historical and biographical works about Baha'i history and so forth. But my own involvement is very much at the level of, you know, how do we bring what's being learned by the Baha'i community to bear on some of the problems facing humanity today? Because the Baha'i community is really, it's a, it's a rich sort of, you know, social laboratory of sorts in which people around the world, really a diverse cross-section of humanity, are trying to learn very systematically how to address these challenging problems, you know, of the age we live in. Michael, do you have another book project in mind or one under development? I'm just sort of in the early stages of another project. It's on another, I guess, what I would consider a foundational challenge that we face today, which is how do we pursue social change? Many people are upset about the state of the world today and are motivated to engage in various forms of activism. But there's an underlying question about what kind of activism is actually effective and you know, how to work for social change. Social movements struggle with these questions and other forms of sort of political action struggle with this question. Uh, philosophers and, and political scientists and theorists often frame this in terms of the question of means and ends. If, you know, if the ends we seek, for instance, are to create a more peaceful and just social system or social order, then what sort of means will help us get there. You know, on one side of that debate, some people would say social justice should be pursued through any means necessary, including violence. 
On the other side, people say that actually our means prefigure our ends. In other words, the means we adopt actually sort of shape the ends. So if we adopt violent means, we're actually just going to create a new social order that is, is violent in new ways. So this question of means and ends is sort of at the heart of my next project. And looking at the sort of evolving conversation about this, which actually goes back a couple of hundred years, people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King were very important voices in that conversation, but many other thinkers as well. What I'm really looking at is, you know, how can we best think about this question of means and ends in the 21st century, given the staggering complexity of the problems we face and their urgency and our increasing global interdependence? What are the most effective means for pursuing transformative change? So how would you differentiate what you wrote in Constructing Social Reality from what you're working on now or thinking about now in regards to the, the ways and means? Constructing Social Reality, in some ways, it's a lot about how can we think about the generation of knowledge and, and actually participate in the generation of knowledge about the world we want to create, like learning our way forward. But that book actually ends with this question of activism. So also, you know, what, then what's the relationship between the generation of knowledge about how to live together on this planet and activism? So it really leads up to this question that I'll be engaging now. So this next project really is much more explicitly focused on the question of activism. Like, what does this mean on a day-to-day -day basis for, you know, social action? for movement building and, you know, the kinds of activities we see in the world today where people are trying to figure out collectively how to respond on the ground to the need for change. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for sharing your work with us and especially your, your latest book, Constructing Social Reality, an inquiry into the normative foundations of social change. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Carlberg, author of Constructing Social Reality, an inquiry into the normative foundations of social change. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
sometimes I get the feeling that something is missing more and more with time I realize we can't make it on our own unlock my heart because I need to know that we're never Of the meadow, the roses of the garden. These children are the plants of the orchard. 
flowers of that meadow, the roses of that garden. Is a duty, and so we gotta do it right. Cause they could be the darkness, or they could be the light. Every soul is a mind that's rich, rich in potential it needs to release. So it's divine education we need to reveal the gems of build peace. Sweet baby, woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Equal but not the same. Woman and man, they love the baby. Woman and man think she's a jewel. Woman and man teach her to pray. And Papa makes sure that she goes to school. The university. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Equal but not the same.
whether you're woman or man, whether you're black, white or tan, whether you're even or odd, we're all equal in the sight of God. Everybody now, woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Equal but not the same. A little louder. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Equal but not the same. A little softer. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Woman and man are equal. Equal but not the same. Oh God, guide me. Protect me, love. Guide me, love. Protect me, love. Make of me a shining land.
Come. 